About six months before our Savior was crucified, he took his disciples up to the regions of Caesarea Philippi, about 30 miles north, northeast of the Sea of Galilee. And uh, for the first time in his earthly ministry, he questioned them specifically concerning his own identity. Now, he had been in his earthly ministry about two and a half to three years at that point, And there had been multitudes, literally, that had seen his miraculous uh, power, uh, the workings that he had performed. Uh, they had seen him heal the sick miraculously. They had seen him uh, cleanse lepers, which was uh, unheard of. They had seen him cause the lame to walk, the blind to see. They would even seen him uh, walk upon the surface of the water. They would watched him cast out demons who were in possession of individuals. Uh, they had even seen him raise the dead back to life. And um, in addition to that, they had heard his distinctive teaching. And, uh, you know, the Lord, when he taught, he didn't just quote the latest traditions from the various schools of the rabbis, but he spoke as one who had authority directly from God. And uh, they, uh, uh, they, they, they shook their heads in amazement. And they, they said to themselves, we've never heard anybody uh, teach like this man. So they were equally impressed with his teaching. And uh, so at this point, Jesus wanted to know what they thought about him. He said, he said uh, whom do men say that I am? To put that in our vernacular tonight is like saying, what are they saying about me? You know, if the Lord was to ask us tonight, what are they saying about me? What would we tell him? You know, tragically, I'm, I'm afraid that we'd have to tell him that a lot of people are not saying much, uh, that there are a lot of people who are not talking about him very much, and that he's not in their minds and in their hearts very much, and really doesn't have much of an impact upon their lives. You know, there's one thing that's being said about our Lord, though, now, uh, that might be surprising to you by some in the Jewish community uh, of all places. There are some very prominent Jewish uh, people, Jewish re uh, leaders, religious leaders, in fact, uh, that have begun to reassess their uh, estimate of Jesus Christ. Now, in, according to the New Testament, when Jesus arrived upon the scene, the religious leaders of the Jews were hostile to him or hostile toward him from the very beginning. In Mark, the second chapter, you'll remember that uh, there was uh, some men that were carrying a paralyzed man uh, on a pallet. And uh, when Jesus was in Capernaum, and they were taking him to Jesus for the purpose of having him healed of his paralysis. They got to the house where Jesus was. The crowd was so thick that they couldn't get inside. But not to be denied, they went up on the roof and tore a hole in the roof and lowered the man down through the roof on the pallet to Jesus below. And the first words out of Jesus' mouth when he saw the paralyzed man were, Thy sins be forgiven thee. Well, the Jewish religious leaders recoiled in shock. And they thought to themselves, who can forgive sin but God only? And they accused him right then of blasphemy. Later, when Jesus ate normally, when he uh, visited his friends, uh, who, was, uh, who was a tax collector, also when uh, he went to a wedding feast later, according to Matthew 11 and verse 19, the religious leaders of the Jews accused him of being a, a gluttonous man, a wine-bibber, and a friend of publicans and sinners. In Mark 3 and verse 30, they conceded that Jesus was able to cast out demons and evil spirits, but they said the power by which he did that was an evil spirit. In Mark 3, uh, the first seven verses, they accused him of being a violator of the Sabbath day. So you see that at the very beginning, that they were hostile toward Jesus. And you know, the, the fact is that after his resurrection, 
And uh, as the church began to grow and began to become uh, more popular among the people, the, uh, the slander and the charges that were made against Jesus by the religious uh, Jewish community only intensified. You can find in the Talmud today, and the Talmud it was a, is a commentary upon the Jewish scriptures, the Jewish writings. Uh, there Jesus is accused of being one who was a scoffer against the words of the wise. He is also called the illegitimate son of a Roman soldier. And uh, on and on it goes until relatively modern times. But you know, beginning about 75 years ago, there were some uh, Jewish leaders that began to reassess their opinion of Jesus Christ. And uh, it continues on to this day. I want to read you just a few quotes. Rabbi Hyman Inlow, past president of the Central Conference of American Rabbis, uh, said, Jesus has become the most popular, the most studied, the most influential figure in the religious history of mankind. No sensible Jew can be indifferent to the fact that a Jew has had a tremendous part in the religious education and direction of the human race. Rabbi Stephen S. Wise, Zionist leader and founder of the Jewish Institute of Religion says, neither Christian protest nor Jewish lamentation can annul the fact that Jesus was a Jew, a Hebrew of the Hebrews. He goes on to say, surely it is not wholly unfit that we not so much appropriate him, but that he be assigned by us to the place in Jewish life and Jewish history, which is rightfully his own. Jesus was not only a Jew, but he was the Jew, the Jew of Jews. Dr. Pinchas Lapide, an Orthodox scholar, adds, Jesus was utterly true to the law of Moses, as myself hoped to be. I even suspect that Jesus was even more true to the law of Moses than I, an Orthodox Jew. The late Albert Einstein, Nobel Prize winner in physics from Princeton University, he said, as a child, I received instruction both in the Bible and in the Jewish Talmud. I am a Jew, but I am enthralled by the luminous figure of the Nazarene. Benjamin Disraeli, the former prime minister of Great Britain, he says, uh, perhaps in this enlightened age, uh, he says, uh, maybe we'll be able to see that, that uh, of all the princes of the house of David, none have done so much for the Jews as the prince who was crucified at Calvary. And then finally, Larry King on CNN's Larry King Live, he said, as a Jew, I've had nothing but the greatest and the most profound respect for Jesus Christ of Nazareth. He was, after all, Jewish, born Jewish, died Jewish. I think Jesus Christ was the greatest single individual in uh, of both millenniums, and he has had a more profound effect on mankind than any individual ever born. If there's one person in history I'd like to interview, it would be Jesus. That's pretty interesting, isn't it? You know, all this began about 75 years ago uh, as a result of a book that was published by a very prominent Jewish scholar, a man by the name of Dr. Joseph Klausner. Dr. Klausner was a, a professor at Hebrew University in Jerusalem for a number of years, and he wrote a book entitled Jesus of Nazareth. And uh, what he concluded about Jesus of Nazareth was that uh, Jesus was just a simple teacher who saw himself sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. And he quotes Matthew 10, verses 5 and 6, Matthew 15, and verse 24. He said Jesus viewed himself 
uh, as did every other Jew of his day, as a son of Abraham and superior to the Gentiles. And he quotes Luke 19, verse 9, uh, chapter 13, verse 16, and Mark 7 and verse 27. And he goes on to, to argue that it never entered the mind of Jesus to proclaim his teachings outside of the Jewish nation. He said the law and the prophets, these were his faith and his religion. The people of Israel, this was the people to whom this religion was given. And he went on to say that uh, the, the ethical and moral teachings of Jesus are the greatest that have ever been uttered. And he said the only way that they can take their rightful place in Jewish literary history is if we can disassociate him from the religion of Christianity. And as outrageous as that may sound to you, that is precisely what they've done. They argue that Jesus was born a Jew, he lived a Jew, he died a Jew, and he never intended uh, to spread his teaching to anybody other than a small band of Jews. And they contend that it was Paul who later came upon the scene who took the teachings that, that Jesus had given to the Jews and uh, expanded them and turned it into a worldwide religion of Christianity. Now that sounds outrageous, but that's uh, precisely what is being said by many prominent Jews in the religious world today. You know, that way they can, they can claim the Savior, but they don't have to uh, accept the religion of Christianity at the same time. I'll tell you what it reminds me of. My son, I mentioned uh, last night, I believe it was, my son, my older son, Corey, is 28. But uh, when he graduated from junior high school, seems like yesterday, <clears throat> we bought him a, a guitar as a graduation gift. That's all he wanted. You know, uh, I worried that he would get it and play it a few days and put it in the closet for, for, from now on. Well, he didn't do that. He got it and, and he played it every day. And, and he's 28 now. I think he's probably played it almost every day since that time. In fact, uh, he said it was therapeutic, really. And he thinks that's about the only thing that kept him sane through graduate school. But uh, anyhow, when, when he was in high school, I remember that, you know, he'd be on the, the school programs when they'd have, you know, programs and they'd have talent from the school. He had a friend that he uh, made. They weren't real close, but he was also a guitar player. He was mainly a singer. And he accompanied himself on the guitar, whereas Corey was a, a guitarist. But anyhow, they would always be on the programs at school, never together, but on the same programs. And uh, I remember the night that they graduated from high school. Of course, they were thrilled. I saw them standing together. There was about four or five of them uh, standing outside the auditorium, you know, thrilled to death. They finally graduated from high school. And, you know, from that night, it was just like that fella uh, dropped off the face of the earth. I mean, I mean, he, he was just, he never came over to the house anymore, never saw him again. And uh, about two or three years later, I was at home on a Saturday, and I was watching the football game on television. I uh, had my sweat clothes on and my tennis shoes, and, uh, you know, I didn't wasn't plan on going anywhere. I got a call, and it was one of the brethren. He sounded frantic, and uh, he was out at the lodge, and uh, he said that there was a wedding party out there, and that for some reason that the preacher didn't show up. And could I come out there and officiate the wedding? And I, I thought, well, I, I'm, not, I'm not dressed. I'm not ready. Man, I can't do that. And, you know, the game was on. And, and uh, well, uh, he handed the phone to the bride. And she began to cry. 
And I said, okay, I'll, I'll be right out. Well, I got up hurriedly, got cleaned up and got ready and rushed out there. You know, when I, when I walked into the lodge, there was Corey's old buddy from high school, and it was, it was his father who was getting married. I think he was a widower. He was getting married again. And uh, his buddy was going to be the best man, and he was also going to sing uh, for the wedding. And, you know, we spoke and kind of renewed acquaintances. And, and uh, I left after that, and I didn't see him again. I mean, again, it's just like he dropped off the face of the earth. Well, seven years uh, from the time they graduated from high school, it's two, two summers ago, Phyllis and I went out to Marietta, Georgia, a suburb of Atlanta, out there to hold a meeting. The very first day we got there, Brother Larry Parker came up to me, and he said, Carl, he said, do you know a guy from Ada named Blake Shelton? And I thought, oh, that's Corey's old buddy. And I thought, oh, my. I, I hope he's not out here in trouble. And uh, I, I thought, man, I hope he's not wanting money. And then I got to thinking, oh, what if he wants to ride home with us from Atlanta all the way back to Atlanta? He's about 6'5", and uh, Phyllis and I can hardly get in our car and get all of our stuff in the car, you know, uh, as it is. And I thought, I, you know, reluctantly I said, yeah, I know Blake. Why? He said, man, he's a big star. He's a, he's a big uh, country western singer. And uh, he said he's out of Nashville now. Well, I, I, you know, I don't listen to country music. I, that was a shock to me. And uh, he said he's out of Nashville now. I said, man, he's got a, a, a song right now that is number one on all the charts throughout the whole United States. He said, man, they play his music here in Atlanta uh, 24 hours a day. I mean, he is a star. And he said, you know, they say on the radio that he's from Ada, Oklahoma. He said, I just wondered if you knew him. And I said, oh, Blake? Why? I said, he's like one of the boys. I said, why, well, he graduated with my son, Corey, from high school. I, I performed his dad's wedding. Man, I was ready to claim him. Well, you see, that's kind of the way it works. Uh, is somebody that you didn't think maybe a whole lot of at one time. All of a sudden they hit the big time and hey, you're ready to claim them as, as your own. And that's precisely what a lot in the Jewish world have done today about our Savior. They readily admit that Jesus is the most popular, the most studied, the most influential figure that has ever existed in the history of mankind. And he was a Jew. And now it's time that they claim him as their own. But the only way they can do that is to say that he was only a Jew and that he really had no lot, no part in this matter of Christianity and that was all the invention, all the brainchild of the Apostle Paul. Well, that's an inadequate view of Jesus. Now, that's a big turnaround from the hostility that they uh, began to demonstrate toward the Savior, but that's not good enough. They're going to have to admit that he is the Christ, the son of the living God, in order to have an adequate concept of him. Well, in addition to that, in the days of, of, of our Savior, there were those who had uh, inadequate views of him. Uh, we're told here when Jesus asked his disciples, they said, well, some think that you are John the Baptist. And uh, I can understand how some could uh, mistake Jesus for John. They were cousins. And John was about six years older than Jesus. It could be that they had similar physical characteristics. One thing that we do know for sure is that they preached alike. 
Uh, in Mark, Matthew 3, verses 1 and 2, John preached, Repent ye, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And so John preached the necessity of repentance, and he also mentioned that the kingdom was near. Jesus said in Mark 1 and verse 15, he said, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. The time is fulfilled, and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent ye, and believe the gospel. So both men emphasized repentance and the kingdom. Furthermore, John was a baptizer. That's where he got his name. John the Baptist or John the Immerser. Luke 3 and verse 3 and Mark 1 and verse 4. The Bible says that John preached the baptism of repentance for the remission of sins. In John 4 verses 1 and 2, John says that Jesus made and baptized more disciples than did John. And so both men preached the necessity of repentance, of baptism, and the fact that the kingdom was at hand. Neither man could stand hypocrisy. There's an interesting episode in Luke, the third chapter. John was baptizing in the uh, River Jordan. And uh, there were some, uh, some Jews who came to him uh, in order to be baptized, but they were not sincere. And John apparently had an ability that we don't have today. He could look into the heart and he could read people's motives. And John apparently refused to baptize them. And he told them, he said, Woe unto you, generation of vipers, uh, bring forth a fruit worthy uh, of repentance. Uh, he was, uh, in, in essence, calling them a bunch of snakes in the grass because they'd come to him and, uh, and, and actually they were desecrating an ordinance of God because they were not sincere. Some of you here in the audience uh, probably remember the late uh, James R. Stewart. Brother Stewart was a gospel preacher years ago, lived in uh, Texas. He told me one time uh, before he died, he said that, that uh, he was holding a meeting somewhere and he said he baptized man, you know, 30 or 40 people. Back in those days, I don't think it was all that uncommon to baptize, you know, maybe 30, 40, 50 people. He said he had, was having a great meeting, had baptized a number of people. But he said there was a couple of boys that had been coming every night. And he said back in those days, everybody went to the meeting, you know, regardless. That was kind of their social gathering. And he said there was a couple of big old boys, teenage boys, just really just a couple of hoodlums had come to the meeting. And he said they cut up, you know, during the service. And he said one of them uh, told the other one that he thought it would be funny for him to go up and answer the invitation and have that preacher baptize him, even though he really wasn't converted. And he said he thought he'd do it. And the other guy says, I don't think you'll do that. He said, I bet you I will. He said, I bet you you won't. He said, I bet you half a ham that I will. He said, you're wrong. Well, he kind of got to bragging around about it, and word filtered back to Brother Stewart what he had in mind. And Brother Stewart said, sure enough, that night when they extended the invitation, there were several that responded to it, came down the aisle. He said, here came that big old uh, hoodlum, grinning from ear to ear like a possum. Said he came up there and sat down, and he said he uh, took their confessions, and he said he took them out to the, the tank, as they say in Texas. They don't call it a pond. They call it a tank. He said he took them out to the tank, got them lined up there, got them in line. You know, he's taking them one at a time, and, and he would raise his hand, and he'd say, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the remission of sins, I baptize you in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost, and he would immerse them. But he said this big old uh, young hood came up to him, you know, kind of snickering to himself, and he said he got him all ready and raised his hand, and he said, I'm baptizing you for half of a ham. And he said he soused him good. Well, I think that was appropriate because that was the reason that he was being baptized. 
He, uh, he was making a mockery of the uh, ordinance of God. Uh, he wasn't sincere about it, and uh, therefore he got really just what he deserved. And apparently that's exactly what, what uh, John did on this occasion. Well, the Lord had very little patience with hypocrisy. In Matthew 23, verses 14 and 15, he said, Woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you devour widows' houses, and for a pretense make long prayer. Therefore you shall receive the greater damnation. Woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you compass sea and land to make one proselyte, and when he is made, you make him twofold more the child of hell than yourselves. Further, both men were men of self-denial. The Bible says John was clothed in leather and camel's hair, and he ate locusts and wild honey. Jesus said, foxes have holes and birds have nests, but the Son of Man hath not where to lay his head. And then further, both men were men of great courage. You know, uh, uh, Herod Antipas was the, the tetrarch, and that word tetrarch means the ruler over one-fourth of a province, but he was the tetrarch of Galilee during the days of our Lord. He had a half-brother named Philip who lived in Rome, and uh, Philip's wife was named Herodias. And uh, one time Antipas went up to visit his brother in Rome, and when he got there, he was infatuated with his brother's wife, Herodias, and when he got ready to go back home, he just stole her from his brother Philip and took her back home with him and uh, made her his wife. Well, it was uh, very well known that they were living together in an adulterous relationship in Galilee. And so John, you know, the prophet, the conscience of the nation, he approached uh, Antipas and uh, he confronted him about it. He said, it's not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. Well, Herodias was, was enraged and she wanted John executed on the spot. But now, Antipas respected John. In fact, he was a little bit afraid of John. Because he knew that John was a man of God. He didn't want to kill him. And so he just put him in prison. And you know the Bible actually says that from time to time when he could get away from the clutches of his domineering wife, he would go down to the prison and visit with John instead of staying up there with her. Well, she bided her time and waited for a convenient season which presented itself at Antipas' birthday. She planned a big party, invited a bunch of his cronies. And you know, when things were just right, she sent her own daughter, Salome, in to dance. What obviously was a very pr provocative dance before these half-drunken men. And the Bible tells us that Antipas was very pleased with it because in a moment of, uh, of boisterous braggadocio, he jumped up and said, up to half of my kingdom, you name it, and it's yours. I've always thought that was kind of funny. He didn't rule over half of a kingdom. He ruled over a fourth of a kingdom. But hey, what's a little exaggeration when you're trying to impress a pretty girl? Well, she didn't know what to ask for, so she went and told her mother what he had said, and she, oh, 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 that's just what she had been waiting for. She said, you go back in there and you tell him that you want the head of John on a platter. She did just that. Antipas was, he was crushed. He didn't want to hurt John. But now, he's in a bad situation. If he, if he doesn't go through with this, he's going to look bad to the girl and to his drunken cronies. So he sends one of his speculatories down to the cell, and in a flash, he's back, and he's got John's head on a platter. Tradition tells us that it was given to Salome, who in turn gave it to her mother, Herodias, 
and that Herodias mutilated it. That she took a bodkin and stuck it through John's tongue and shouted, you'll never condemn anybody again. And then cast his head away. Antipas never forgot about John, though. Antipas was superstitious. And I've got a hunch every time he went to bed at night, he saw John's uh, apparition just about everywhere he looked. And then he began to hear people out in the courtyard talking about a man, a stranger who had a, arrived upon the scene who was talking about repentance. And he was baptizing people and he was making disciples and that's all Antipas needed to hear. He was convinced this was John come back from the dead to haunt him. Now, he was wrong, but I think you can see why he made the association. You know, uh, John was one of the greatest men who ever lived, according to our Savior. But uh, again, it's not adequate to say that uh, Jesus was just exactly like John, because he wasn't. Uh, there was some difference. Even though there are a lot of similarities between them, there were some differences between the two. What I always think about is over in, in Matthew 11, beginning at about verse 16, and also in Luke 7, at about verse 33. You remember that uh, Jesus was talking to the religious leaders of the day and he told them, he said, you cannot be pleased. He said, John came to you and he said, John would eat no meat. He would drink no wine. He went with, without food for long periods of time. And he said, you called him insane. You said he was possessed of a demon. He said, I come to you. And he said, I attend a wedding feast. He said, I eat and drink like a normal person, and you call me a glutton and a wine-bibber. He said, you remind me of little children who are playing a game, and uh, you're playing wedding feast, and no, you're not happy with playing wedding feast. You want to play funeral. And so they change, and they start playing funeral, and you're not happy with that either. Now, when Jesus gave them that analogy, he told us a great deal about the difference between the way John lived and the way he lived. John and his disciples uh, lived as though they, they, they were isolated. They uh, lived, uh, they went long periods without food, and uh, they uh, would not interact with society, and Jesus characterized them as though they were at a perpetual funeral in mourning. But he, on several occasions, characterized himself and his disciples as though they were attending a wedding feast. And so there were some differences between the two. Well, there were others who said that they thought that he was Elijah. Now, Elijah, of course, was one of the greatest men who ever lived. And uh, Elijah lived about 800, 850 years before Christ. And uh, he, he was... Uh, the one really who, who God staged. Well, just to show you how, how great he was in the eyes of God, you remember when Jesus selected Peter, James, and John and took them up on the Mount of Transfiguration and gave them a glimpse of his glorious nature. Remember who appeared on the Mount? It was Moses and Elijah of all the characters from history. And they were the representation of the law and the prophets. You had the law and the prophets, but God spoke from heaven and said, but now here's my son, hear ye him. You'll recall that when the children of Israel, the Hebrews settled in Canaan and they established a kingdom. Their first king was King Saul. The second king was King David. David ruled for 40 years. 
David was succeeded by his son Solomon, who ruled for 40 years. And then when Solomon died, he was succeeded by his son Rehoboam. And it was when Rehoboam assumed the throne of Israel that uh, Israel had a civil war and divided. And the northern ten kingdoms pulled off from the southern kingdom of Judah. The Bible tells us that from the time that that happened until some 200 years later, uh, when the Assyrians took over the northern kingdom and took them into, into captivity, that they had 19 kings that ruled over the northern kingdom of Israel and that every single one of them did evil in the sight of God. They were as rotten as they could be. They were just as wicked as human beings could possibly be. And it seemed like each one in succession was a little more wicked than the one before. Probably the worst of the lot was King Ahab and his wife Jezebel. And it's interesting to me that of all these 19 kings, Ahab is the only one who has, uh, you know, the, the uh, privilege of having his wife mentioned, Jezebel. And there's an obvious reason for that. His truly was a, a petticoat reign. She was the boss. She ran the show, and he did what she said. Now, she was an idolater. She worshipped Baal. Uh, she worshipped Astaroth. And she wanted to make that the national religion of Israel. They literally slaughtered hundreds of prophets of God because she was determined to make uh, Baal and Ashtoreth the national religion of Israel. Well, God decided to use a man by the name of Elijah to confront Jezebel and King Ahab. Take a look at Elijah's name for just a minute. The letters E-L in Hebrew are uh, an abbreviation for Elohim, or Elohim, however you prefer to pronounce it, but it is an abbreviation for the name of God. It is the general name for God. Oftentimes in the Old Testament Hebrew, uh, God is referred to by the letters E-L. Then the letters J-A-H, that is an abbreviation of God's specific name, Jehovah. The letter I means me or man. So just from analysis of his name, his name means my God is Jehovah. So when Elijah appeared upon the scene and he introduced himself to King Ahab and Jezebel, he was condemning them. He said, my God is Jehovah. Well, he appeared upon the scene with lightning and thunder and, and fire uh, raining down from heaven. In chapter 18 of 1 Kings, you remember probably the most uh, momentous episode in the life of, of uh, Elijah was he challenged the 450 prophets of Baal to build an altar, and he would build an altar, and they would pray to their respective gods, and whichever one sent down fire and consumed the altar, they would agree that that was the true God. Well, of course, God Jehovah is the one who answered, and uh, the people cried out and said, Jehovah is God, and so Elijah had the people gather up the 450 prophets of Baal and he took his sword and he executed every one of them. You may be sitting there thinking, wasn't that a little bit of an overkill? But you know what? If you've got a, a cancer that's going to destroy the body, you need to cut it all out. Excise it, you need, you need to get it all. And the 450 prophets of Baal were a cancer 
And they were destroying the people of Israel. And he got them all. He went out the same way. He appeared on the scene with fire and thunder from heaven. When his life was over, he didn't die a natural death. God sent a chariot of fire in a whirlwind and took him to heaven, translated him without his tasting of death in the natural sense. You know, I've heard people, uh, you, you, you can see how that uh, Jesus uh, could be uh, mistaken for Elijah. Did you know in the last two verses of the Old Testament, the book of Malachi, the prophet Malachi says that before the uh, Messiah comes, that, uh, that, that uh, Elijah will return. He will return uh, to be the forerunner for the, the man of God. And of course, Jesus explained to his disciples what that meant, that uh, that was referring to John the Baptist who was coming in the spirit of Elijah to pave the way for him. But uh, the Jews, even to this day, are still looking for the return of uh, Elijah. The fact is, Orthodox Jews will set an extra plate at the table for the Passover just in case he, uh, Elijah comes back at that time. And so because most of the Jews were looking for Elijah to come back, and there appeared upon this scene a man who could work miracles, and he's all the time talking about fire. Did you know that the word, if, I, if memory serves me correctly, the word hell is found 12 times in the gospel, nine times Jesus is the one who voiced it. He, was he talked about hell, about fire, about a lake of fire, and uh, an eternal fire. In addition to that, he, he cleansed the temple. He drove out the money changers. He turned over the tables of the money changers and the seats of the dove sellers. And uh, people saw that this man wasn't just meek, but uh, they saw that there was, uh, that there was also some, some uh, severity involved. You remember Paul said in Romans 11 and verse 22, Behold both the goodness and the severity of God. And there are those who seem to think that, well, you know, maybe this, this man was Elijah. And uh, again, that's, uh, even though there were some similar characteristics, it's inadequate to say that Jesus was just like Elijah because there was differences between them. I'm often reminded when the Lord and his disciples were getting ready to make that uh, fateful trek from Galilee down to Jerusalem that would end in his crucifixion. He sent some of his men ahead of him through Samaria and told them to go down there and secure a place for them. Now they didn't usually travel through Samaria. Here was Judea, here was Samaria, and here was Galilee. Usually they would go over here east of the River Jordan and go up that way and go around so they wouldn't have to go through Samaria because there was bad blood between the Samaritans and the Judeans. Jesus, however, on this occasion told his disciples to go through Samaria and secure them a place to stay en route to Jerusalem. And his disciples got down there and they wouldn't give them a place to stay. They would not accommodate them. And... Uh, you remember on that occasion that John, he told Jesus, he said, why don't we just do like Elijah did and call down fire from heaven and burn them uh, off the face of the earth? I'm going to confess to you about 10 years ago, I was driving out here to California to hold a meeting. I don't even remember where I was going now, but I do remember that I got a late start 
For some reason, I wasn't going to be able to leave very early, uh, about noon, I think it was. And I, I knew it was going to take me at that time probably about 10 or 11 hours to drive to Albuquerque. And so I called and I made a reservation at a motel that I'd stayed at before. And I secured it by paying for it with my, with my credit card. You know, I got there, oh, it was late, I don't remember, you know, around midnight. I was so tired. I, I was absolutely uh, just, I felt uh, uh, dopey. I got out of my car, my reflexes were slow. I, I, didn't, I couldn't walk a straight line into the lobby. And I got in there and I told the clerk, I said, I'm Carl Johnson, I've got a reservation for tonight. And uh, forgive me, this, this uh, arrogant, snotty clerk condescendingly told me, he said, uh, Mr. Johnson, he said, we've overbooked for tonight. You have no reservation with us. He said, uh, there's a roadway in a couple of, couple of blocks down the street. You know, I thought about Elijah then. And if I could have called down some fire from heaven, I would have given him a dose. So uh, I, I can understand. You know, I can kind of identify with uh, maybe how John felt on that occasion. But you know what the Lord told John on that occasion uh, it's just amazing. He told John, he said, uh, you don't even know what you're talking about. Call down fire from heaven and burn these people to a crisp. He said, I didn't come into the world to destroy mankind. He said, I came in the world to save them. Now, even, even Elijah understood eventually that there's a place for fire and thunder and lightning and earthquakes and you know, that clears the clutter. But it still takes the calm, reasoned voice and word of God to convert the heart. Well, we could go on tonight. There are others who thought that he was uh, Jeremiah. Jeremiah was the weeping prophet. Jesus was called the man of sorrows, uh, acquainted with grief. Both men wept for the same reason, uh, because of the sins of the people. And uh, I guess we could go on and on. And you know, those are flattering uh, estimates of anybody to say that they're like John, that they're like Elijah, that they're like Jeremiah, that they're like any of these great esteemed prophets in history. But friends, I'm going to tell you, all of those are inadequate. The only adequate response is the golden oracle that was spoken by Peter when he said, Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. And friends, regardless of what estimate you might have of Jesus, if you don't have that estimate of him, it's inadequate. We thank you for listening to our podcast put on by the Church of Christ at 2215 Plans Road in Bakersfield. If you would like any additional information or you would like to receive a free Bible correspondence course by mail, please email us at info at churchofchristbakersfield.com. Our service times are Sundays at 10.30 a.m. and 5 p.m. and Wednesdays at 7.30 p.m. Please make plans to join us. We would love for you to be our honored guest.